Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Father, as we contemplate these challenging words of Jesus, we pray that our hearts would be open to their meaning, and that you would speak to us through your word as it is proclaimed. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The question that we have to ask ourselves in Matthew chapter 5 as we see Jesus teaching is, who has the right to say these things? Who has the right to interpret the law? Because that's what Jesus is doing. He's interpreting the law. Now, before we think about his interpretation of the law, and we think about the content of those six antitheses, those six sayings that make up the bulk of Matthew chapter 5, we're first going to look at the structure of what Jesus is saying. So before the content, the structure, that, that just turn of phrase, that you've heard it said, but I say to you, that's what we're going to contemplate this morning, because it matters. Because what Jesus is talking about here is the Bible, specifically the authority of the Bible. And there's a difference of opinion about what the Bible teaches, If the Bible is the authority, but we don't agree on what the Bible says, how can we know? By what standard can we judge what is right and wrong? There is a difference among us of interpretation, in other words. Can this authority, the authority of the Bible, be interpreted to mean whatever you want it to mean? Well, the fact that we make it say so many different things seems to suggest that it can that it's all just a question of interpretation. And if it is just a question of interpretation, then we have to ask ourselves, who has a right to interpret the law? Who can interpret with authority what God has written? That's the question that we're going to ask ourselves this morning. When you think about the way that Jesus teaches here, the technique that he uses, rhetorically speaking, he's stating something old, And then he's following up with kind of his personal take on it. You've heard that this was said, but now I say this to you. What Jesus is doing here isn't unique to Jesus. 
Jesus is engaging with what you might think of as the central question in human history. Like, this is the thing that, that human beings have been doing from the very beginning, and we are still doing. Asking ourselves, what is the law, or what is the standard? Like, by what standard can we judge what is right and what is wrong? By what measure can we determine what righteousness is and what unrighteousness is? How can we tell who the good people and the bad people are? Every human philosophy has a different way of answering this question. If you think about it, that's what philosophy is. Philosophy, whether we're talking formally, like the philosophy of the philosophers, or just small p philosophy, the way that we live our lives, the way that we think about the world, ultimately, it all revolves around trying to answer that question. Like, where's the line? What's the standard? How are we to understand or interpret that authority? How do we judge what is right? Now, the great thing about this, if you're a teacher is that every philosophy answers it a little bit differently. So that's job security. Because if you're going to teach the history of philosophy, you're going to have a lot of different answers that you can pass along. If you start with the ancient Greek philosophers and then you start working your way through, you get all these different takes on reality, all these different answers to, like, what is the basis of morality? I once was at a worldview camp where we had a guest speaker come in doing like an audition lecture, and the title of his lecture was The History of Philosophy. And I was fascinated because I was curious, like, you've got 50 minutes, what little aspect of the history of philosophy are you going to focus on? The answer was all of them. His goal was to give the entire history of philosophy in, uh, in 50 minutes, and he, he didn't intend to rush. It was, it was a fascinating lecture, and you won't be surprised to know it went a little over the time limits. Because that's what happened, because there's a lot of different philosophies, a lot of different answers. But every philosopher, every teacher does basically the same thing. They come along and they say, you have heard it said that this is the way it is. But I say to you, it's really like this. All of us come along and in our generation take what was said before and then we give a little I say to it, a little interpretation of our own, how we intend to live the standards of the past, because that's the way to think about it. Well, you've heard it said of old, that's talking about the past, that's talking about tradition, that's talking about what our parents believed, what old people believed, what they believed in the olden days, the way things used to be. You've heard it said of old. But I say to you, that's how you indicate what is new what is current, what is progress, what is the new way of thinking about these old questions. One thing that hasn't changed about human beings is, in each generation, we, we like to think the way we think, not the way they think. So we're very receptive to this way of speaking. Like, we want to hear what was wrong with, with what they thought. We want you to tell us a new way of thinking about these things. That's what every teacher does. You've heard it said that some men are born to rule. But I say to you that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. You have heard it said that the workers should be grateful to the bosses for the opportunity to make money. But I say to you that the workers of the world should unite 
and that they have nothing to lose but their chains. Every generation casts aside the wisdom of what went before and embraces some new way of answering that question, where to draw the line, what is right and what is wrong. So what Jesus is doing here is familiar. Jesus says, you've heard it said, the things are this way. But I say to you that it's different. And Jesus gives his interpretation of the law. The question is, when Jesus interprets the law, how does he do it? What does he do? What, What do all of his takes on the law have in common? Because remember, we've already established the Bible can be made to say whatever you want it to say. But you're at this church, and here we interpret the Bible a certain way. We interpret it a way that kind of fits with our tradition, the Westminster standards. And and then I, Pastor Mark, tend to interpret things in a Pastor Mark kind of way. But if you were to go to a different church with a different tradition and a different pastor, you could hear the same text being preached, but you could hear something different about it. You probably wouldn't hear exactly the same text. Most preachers have more self-respect than to only preach phrases like this. But, but you get the idea. Depending on what church you choose to go to, you could hear a completely different message about who Jesus is and what Jesus wants, what the Bible teaches, and what it doesn't teach. You see this all the time. People arguing constantly in the media. The Bible condemns this. Oh, no, the Bible says nothing about that. Or even better, the Bible affirms that constantly. just depends on how you interpret it. So how does Jesus interpret it? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives us a flavor of his interpretation of the law. And when he interprets the law, he takes different aspects, sometimes of of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, other aspects of the law he brings in, and he contrasts the way they've been understood with the way they really are. As you've heard it said, and he states the traditional understanding. In some cases, what he does is he quotes the text. But what he intends by that is to allude to the traditional way the text has been understood and also the way that it's been limited. Like the way that God's commands have been, let's say, fenced in by human interpretation and understanding as well. So what Jesus is doing here is he's taking the interpretation of the scribes and the Pharisees, of the scholars who've gone before him, the way they say the law is meant to be interpreted and lived, and then he's proposing an alternative interpretation of the law. And when Jesus interprets the law, the law always, as I said last time, two weeks ago, the law always seems to get harder. The way the scribes and the Pharisees interpret the law, it sounds like you need to be a really good person in order to keep the law. But the way Jesus talks about the law, it starts sounding like nobody could keep the law. When the scribes and Pharisees talk about murder, you feel comforted because you haven't killed anyone. When they talk about adultery, you think, well, that sounds difficult, but I think I can do that one. When Jesus talks about it, you start thinking, I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. I'm an oathbreaker. I'm guilty of all the things that Jesus says I shouldn't be guilty of. That's the difference. To borrow that phrase of Paul's, Jesus interprets the law so that the law does what Paul says it's meant to do. It increases the trespass. When Jesus teaches the law, the law sounds much more severe 
than you realized it was. And this is talking to people who already knew it was severe. But Jesus is actually intensifying the severity, the requirements of the law. He's making it clear that the command is much harder to keep than the tradition has implied that it is. Even so, there can be no question about what Jesus is doing here. Jesus isn't adding to the law. Jesus isn't saying, I know in the Ten Commandments it says, you shall not murder, but I say to you, in addition to not murdering, there's some other stuff you shouldn't do as well. He's not adding to what God has said. What he's doing is he's showing the way it should always have been understood from the beginning. So nothing that Jesus says in whatever topic he's talking about should be understood as Jesus adding to the law. Instead, what Jesus is doing is interpreting the law rightly. He's showing them how they should have understood the law from the beginning. And he's saying it to people who regard themselves as righteous, as lawkeepers. So he's confronting people who believe that they can keep the law, and he's illustrating to them how far short they fall from actually keeping it. Because that's the irony of Jesus' ministry, especially this phase. The people that Jesus is challenging, the people who are in his crosshairs, are not the sinners, are not the people who you would think a good rabbi would be targeting. Instead, he's taking on the self-appointed custodians of the law. He's taking on the people who are the inheritors and the interpreters of God's word, and he's saying, you don't interpret the word correctly, that your interpretation is wrong. When the scribes and Pharisees give the impression that as long as you're a better than average person, a good upstanding person, you might be able to keep the law, not only are they lying, but they are guiltier than most. Because they're doing the thing that Jesus has just told us you shouldn't do. Like, they are relaxing the law, the strictures of the law, and they're teaching other people to relax the law as well. So there's a reason why he has a special anger, righteous outrage towards them, because they're guilty of doing this very thing. They have relaxed the law in Jesus' terms, and they've taught others to do it as well. And yet... From all outward appearances, they seem like good religious people. That's the funny thing. That's the thing to consider. The most dangerous philosophies, the most dangerous interpretations of reality are the ones that sound the best, are the ones that are the most high-minded, the ones that are the most ennobling, the ones that make us feel the best about ourselves when we believe these things. The most dangerous things to believe are the ones that lead you to pat yourself on the back for how noble and right your beliefs are. And this is what Jesus is pointing to here. The ones who have deceived the people are are the ones who seemed to be good and noble interpreters of the law. But everyone who does what the scribes and the Pharisees did, everyone who lowers the bar by pretending to raise it, is guilty of this, is guilty of mishandling, the word, mishandling the truth. All of our philosophies promise utopia, but only deliver different kinds of dystopia. They obscure the reality. 
that Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts his finger on when he wrote that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Jesus isn't embracing one faction or another. Jesus isn't entering into a conflict of interpretations and then siding with the people who seem to have it mostly right. Instead, Jesus is taking on the interpreters who seem to be the most faithful, who seem to be the ones who are most committed to what God has said, and he is challenging them, and he is saying nothing less than the truth is acceptable. Nothing less than interpreting God's word as God intends it can pass muster. Any interpretation that allows us to congratulate ourselves and to think that we are good enough has to be repudiated because the problem isn't out there. The problem isn't with them. The problem is in here. The problem is in the human heart. When you look at the structure of Jesus' thought, you see that what Jesus is doing is actually not what all the other philosophers do. Jesus is not challenging traditional interpretations and giving them a contemporary new spin. Jesus is challenging false interpretations and replacing them with the true interpretation of God's word. This is why people said he teaches with authority, not like a scribe and a Pharisee. When he teaches, he teaches as a person who has the right to say what this stuff means. He teaches with authority the way that an author exercises authority over what he has written. Because that's exactly the relationship that Jesus has to the Word. If Jesus is the Word of God, Jesus can interpret with authority like no other. And when Jesus interprets... All of these challenges that he makes, all six of them, seem to have something in common. Now, as we go forward in this series, we're going to look at each one of them in turn. But for now, I want to consider what they have in common. Like there's a common movement that they make. They direct our attention away from one thing towards another. You consider all six of these antithetical statements together and you search for that common denominator, you can say that in each case, there is a movement from outward observance to inward righteousness. From outward observance to inward righteousness. Like Jesus is pointing out in a lot of different ways that it's not enough to act rightly. You must be right. You must be righteous. It is not enough to act justly. You must be right in your heart. In fact, it's impossible for a heart which is not righteous to produce action which is righteous. So the problem of unrighteousness can be traced back to the heart. The traditional interpretation has been that righteousness is measured by action. And there is a connection between righteousness and action, but right action is the fruit of a right heart. Jesus, in his teaching, emphasizes that right action can only emerge 
from a right heart. In order to be right before God, the heart must be right. If the heart is not right, then the act is not right. If the heart is wicked, then even the wicked impulse that isn't acted upon condemns the one who possesses it. Not just our corrupt action, but our corrupt desire condemns us, Jesus said. Before the law, even the desires of the heart are enough to condemn us. Solzhenitsyn wasn't the only person to understand that the problem was in the human heart. If you go back in church history and you read some Augustine, you'll recognize that Augustine, too, because of the influence of of this, this Jesus and Pauline way of seeing human beings, recognizes that the difficulty is the heart. One scholar of Augustine says, for Augustine, the problem was not the flesh per se. The desires of the flesh exhibited a deeper problem. The real culprit was the unruly human heart, which clung to the wrong things, or more precisely, loved things in the wrong way. So Jesus, through six different particular cases, is getting at what we might call the heart of the matter, showing that the problem of human sin and corruption is a heart problem, not just an action problem. This isn't actually new. Jesus is not doing something novel here. God was never satisfied with outward obedience. God always cared, first and foremost, about the righteousness of the human heart. You go back to the book of Genesis and you read about the flood in the days of Noah and and the reasons for that, the reasons that Genesis gives for the flood, the wickedness of the human heart. Genesis 6, 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the evil intentions of the heart led to judgment. The prophets of the Old Testament understood this when they called for repentance. They didn't just call for a renewed outward obedience. They spoke to the heart. Joel said in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, rend your hearts, not your garments. It's not the outward appearance, but the reality of repentance in the heart that God calls for. Paul in Romans chapter 2 recognizes a relationship between the law of God and the human heart. He says the Gentiles, who were never given the law, still live according to the law that God has written in their heart. They show, he says, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. There's something about their humanity that means that God's law, God's word, is operable in their lives. Even salvation, for Paul, is a matter of the heart. He says in Romans 10.10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Salvation itself, not a matter of action, but a matter of belief, a matter of the heart. The heart is the problem. The heart is the center of concern. It is the heart that the law brings under condemnation. All of us stand condemned by the law written on our hearts. God requires more than right action. He demands rightness of heart. 
not just outward obedience. Right action flows from a right heart. And as Jesus speaks about the law, the thing that you come to realize is that your heart's not right. No matter how you've lived, no matter how good you look in comparison to anybody else, the more Jesus talks, the more you feel it inside. You're not right in here. You're not righteous before God. The way Jesus interprets the law is not only authoritative, but the way he interprets the law is a challenge to your heart. And when you hear that challenge, you're either going to stop your ears, you're going to stop listening to what he says, because it cuts too deeply, it condemns too much, or you're going to listen. You're going to listen in despair, because who can keep this? If you can read Matthew chapter 5 and stop at the end of Matthew chapter 5 and feel good, you're crazy. Nobody can feel good and content and satisfied with themselves after hearing Jesus preach on the law. Because the way he preaches the law brings us all under condemnation. We haven't used the word, but the concept that we've been talking about is jurisdiction. Jurisdiction, we talk a lot about in, in uh, courtroom context, who has jurisdiction in this area or that area. I always love the idea that if the cops are chasing you, and in the old days it worked a little better than it does now, the cops are chasing you, but you can get across the county line outside their jurisdiction, they have no power, that sort of thing. There's a limit on power. That, that, that speaks to that word jurisdiction. But literally, jurisdiction is just like a combination of two words, like juris, like law, and diction, which is speaking. Speaking the law. Who has the right to speak the law? Who gets to say what goes? Jesus has jurisdiction when it comes to speaking the law. God can tell us how to rightly understand the law. And the way that Jesus speaks the law brings us all under condemnation. None of our hearts pass muster in the eyes of Jesus. Jesus is the true and authoritative interpreter of the law, and so we stand condemned by the law of the heart. But the good news is that Jesus is not only the, the true speaker of the law, but Jesus is also the true fulfiller of the law, and so there is hope. As I said before, what Jesus is doing here is exemplifying Paul's phrase, increase the trespass. He's showing us how, if you rightly understand the law, it just seems like sin gets worse and worse. There's much more sin than you realized in you. And that's true. That is what the law does, but it does that for a reason. As Paul says in Romans 5, verses 20 and 21, the law came in to increase the trespass, but... Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is correcting the way that we have wrongly minimized the law, the way that we have wrongly tried to, to lower the standard of God's holiness. And that aspect of the message of Christ should drive us to despair, because it brings us under condemnation. But he does it for a reason. He does it 
to illustrate to us that if sin is as bad as it truly is, we have no hope apart from grace, apart from the gift that Jesus himself has come to give us. Because if you think about it, all of those different philosophies, all of those different generations worth of saying, I say unto you this, I say unto you that, all of them kind of make the assumption that what they're saying can actually be done. We could fix the world if only you would embrace my philosophy. I have figured out what is wrong, and if you will just embrace my way of seeing the world, then the problem will be solved. That's the assumption that drives so much human thought. We could fix this if only we framed the question rightly. We could fix it if only we had the right understanding. But what if the problem is bigger than that? What if the problem can't be solved through human understanding? If the standard that Jesus has articulated is truly the standard, then it is a standard that is impossible for us to keep. If this is truly the law, then our only hope is grace. And the good news is Jesus came to give us that grace. Jesus didn't come to remind us what the law really teaches. He came, as he said, to fulfill it. And in fulfilling it, to live a life of righteousness that becomes ours through faith. Every authority that seeks to be over you says, I say unto you this, I say unto you that. And the question is, which authority will you listen to? Do you listen to the voice that says, follow me and you can do it? And you listen to the voice that says, follow me, and it's done. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.